Welcome to Influencers. Everyone we speak to will be making a difference in some aspect of cycling or micromobility. Some will be unsung heroes and others people you might already know. Stephen Drake is one of those people who seems to achieve success at everything that he turns his hand to. He combined a double university degree with an ever upwards road cycling trajectory that saw him become Australian road champion, race internationally, and then represent Australia at the Commonwealth Games. Then he seamlessly shifted gears into the corporate world, rising through two decades of hard work to managing director level of the world's largest private bank. For his next trick, Stephen returned to Australia and united 18 separate cycle sport entities across three diverse disciplines into a single body. This was such a rare and remarkable sports transformation that it has been written about extensively, not just in sporting media, but in the financial and management media worlds. Having achieved that feat, Stephen is now back on his bike, enjoying his riding and looking forward to his next challenge. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on The Influencers. My pleasure. Now, you could divide your career into three sections, or at least I've chosen two. You've got a, a racing career, a corporate career, and then let's call it a sports administration career, perhaps. Yep. Yep. And I'd like to mainly focus on the third of those, but let's lay some groundwork. So could you, you know, tell us about your racing career to start with? Sure. Um, I reckon I fell in love with cycling when I was about five, um, but I didn't start racing until I was maybe 15. Um, my grandfather had raced in the 30s and uh, he told me a few stories that got me interested, but it was harder to get involved in those days. There's no internet to find clubs or anything like that. Um, I didn't eventually get involved until then. Um, and I was I, I, just a, an enthusiastic but fairly ordinary rider. Um, and then invested a bit more time in when I was at uni. Um, eventually got to the point where I got um, noticed by Dave Sanders and the Victorian Institute of Sport um, and just continued to develop and then probably the early 90s I won a Victorian championship and then started placing in higher races and then 93 I won uh, the Australian championship which was then an amateur championship uh, won a Grafton Inverell next year went to the Institute of Sport the AIS um, and spent that year with them uh, including riding the 94 Com Games. Um, and then at the end of the year, was trying to figure out where I went to next. Um, I, was, I thought I was getting a bit long in the tooth. I was 25. Um, but because I'd sort of done a couple of uni degrees and I was starting to think, don't know whether I'm going to get much further with cycling. And then I don't know whether fate stepped in, um, but I got glandular fever and that sort of helped me make up my mind that uh, it was time to move on to something else. And I, eventually, I joined a firm that is now called UBS uh, and was working in investment banking for them uh, for a little over 20 years. 
until the third stage of my career. And that, that second career took you all over the world, didn't it? It did. I started in Melbourne, um, but uh, we went and lived in London for nearly seven years at, at one point. Both my sons were born uh, in London. Then we came back here um, for mostly family reasons. Um, it was getting a bit logistically difficult and, um, you know, our kids were developing alarming English accents. <laughs> um, so we, we moved back in, uh, in 2005 and then uh, not with any real intention of going anywhere else, but uh, in 2011, I was offered a, a role in Hong Kong. So we went up there for close to five years. And modesty has prevented you perhaps from saying it, but you did rise to the position of managing director. Yeah, so managing director in, a, in an investment bank is similar to a partner in a law firm. So um, had that, that title. Um, I was running a team of about 30 people in, in, in Hong Kong covering the whole of Asia at, at, in the last years of, of my career with UBS. Um, and that was great fun, but um, it was also um, you know, work-life balance isn't, uh, isn't always the best in those industries. If, and, and I kind of got to the period where I was sort of looking for something a bit different and then sort of eventually stumbled across Cycling Australia. Okay. So you had to take a big pay cut to step in as the C CEO of Cycling Australia. Yeah. I mean, when I initially got involved, uh, I first joined the board, so I didn't join as CEO. Um, I, I just I joined as a non-executive director. So um, that was yeah, that was, in a, that was in a period <laughs> where um, where I was taking some time off and trying to figure out um, you know what would come next, um, and and eventually that led to be, me being offered the the role of CEO, um, particularly with a view to trying to um, achieve the change that led to our cycling. Okay, so let's talk about that change. So you merged ultimately, cutting to the end of the story, stealing the thunder, 19 organisations into one? Uh, we didn't get one. So uh, I think eventually there'll be 18 that went into one and then, and then uh, West Cycle uh, is continuing in WA, but the racing parts of, of West Cycle have, have joined in with, with Oz Cycling. So we got 18. Um, and uh, we're pretty, pretty happy to have been able to do that. Now, I remember you talking to me at the bar of the Hilton Hotel at the Tour Down Under, where was that, three years ago? I don't know, saying you had this idea. And I was nodding politely and, oh, that's good, Stephen, yeah. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking, hmm, he's got a snowflakes chance in hell of achieving that. So. Firstly, what was the idea behind trying to do that? And what were the keys to successfully achieving that? Um, I think the, the, the main idea behind it was that um, when you looked at all of these different cycling organisations, and you could include the participation ones as well if you wanted to, but let's stick with the racing ones um, for now. There was an enormous degree of commonality between all of those organisations in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Um, you know, maybe the big three are, they all want more people to ride bikes. 
Um, they all want more places to ride and they all want to be able to ride more safely. Um, and so you look at that and you go, well, um, if you've all got the same objectives, why have we got 19 different organisations with 19 separate boards um, and no real underlying um, aligned strategic plan? Doesn't make sense. Um, and then when you looked at across that system, you could see that there were a bunch of things that virtually none of those organisations had the resources to, to fund, um, but were areas that they thought were really important. So, you know, the, and the best one there from the, on the racing side was there was basically no advocacy. Um, so in spite of the fact that they're looking for more places to ride and they're, you know, they're wanting to do it more safely, they've got no ability to um, have that discussion with government and others because they've carved themselves up into small pieces that can't agree on how we would fund, uh, for instance, an advocacy team. And so sort of boiling it back to, to first principles, it was like, okay, if we were going to um, build a business from scratch, there's no way that we would have drawn 19 separate boxes um, and just for, for background, the boxes are the three national organisations. So you've got, you had in those days, Cycling Australia, BMX Australia, and Mountain Bike Australia. Mountain Bike Australia at that time was the only sensible one. They were unitary. So they had just the one organisation nationally. And then um, both uh, Cycling Australia and BMX Australia were federated. So eight separate state and territory organisations with their own boards. Um, and most had staff. Um, and so um, two times eight plus three is 19. There, there, there's the organisations. Um, and there's just no way you would have gotten out a piece of paper and said, okay, I need 19 separate legal entities. Um, and so it was just having that conversation with people about trying to get away from that. And um, it, was a, it was a tough conversation. And I agree, you know, three years ago when we talked I'm not surprised that you doubted whether we would get there because it, it was a hard road. I hate to I hate to admit that, but hey, confession time. <laughs> oh, look, I, I don't think um, you know. You look across Australian sport, and all most sports are like that. There's very few unitary ones, um, probably close to none, um, and it just one of the difficulties when when we were talking to people about this change is a lot of the costs of that structure are actually invisible to members. So they actually don't see the, the dysfunction and the inherent waste that, that results from that structure. They might see or they might complain about, well, how come it takes so long to do this? Or why don't you do that? Um, but ultimately, when you boil it down, it's got to do with small bits of waste, uh, which cum accumulate. And ultimately, I think you've got some quite weird incentives for staff in a federated model 
and particularly a fragmented federated model like we had in competitive cycling that are just not good. Um, those people who are against unifying, the, the, main, um, the main thing they, they wanted to keep was the right to say no. So effectively a veto right, which is the, you know, ultimately the, the piece of power that, that exists in that federated model. And that doesn't, that doesn't lead you to finding solutions. It tends to lead to conflict because people know that they can just say no at the end. Um, I think the, the, the unified structure will force us to find answers. And the other thing from a customer perspective, the federated model allowed you to say, well, that's not my problem. So if I use a, you know, a local example, if there was something going wrong in Victoria, was that a Cycling Australia problem or a Cycling Victoria problem? Um, and, you know, to use a footy analogy, if both players call yours, no one marks the ball. <laughs> so some of these organisations you're talking about were more than 100 years old and nothing more than amateur sport uh, breeds fiefdoms, if you like, or kingdoms and, and attracts certain people to those natural monopolies. Monopoly. So just on a psychological or strategic level, how did you possibly persuade these people? You don't normally get a kingdom, a king giving up their, their kingdom. I think where we had to go back to was, was that underlying commonality that was, was there. Um, even the most um, resistant people um, you know, if you ask them those three questions, you know, do you want to get more people on bikes? Do you want to have more places to ride? Do you want to be able to ride more safely? I go, yeah, of course. So there is that commonality there. And it's just, uh, it was a question of, of trying, we weren't trying to erase the past or, or, you know, trying to say that what worked in the past was wrong. We were just trying to say that, look, as we try to position um, the activity of cycling, and I think it's important to talk about activity rather than just sport, because I think our cycling needs to be more than that. It was set up to be like that, but um, there's a hell of a lot that's changed in the last 30 years. And, and I think if you look at, um, at most of the Olympic sports compared to, um, compared to the commercial sports, the, the playing field has changed so massively. So, you know, without having precise figures, if you sort of thought 30 years ago, I don't know how, you know, maybe the AFL was 10 times bigger than the biggest Olympic sport. Now it might be a hundred times bigger, you know, cause they've got a billion dollar TV deal and they can use that money not only to uh, attract players and staff and all that sort of thing, but to promote their sport and to get kids playing, parents watching, all that sort of thing. And you, you look across uh, the different Olympic sports, including cycling, nothing much has changed in our economy. There's the, there are no big TV deals for cycling or I, don't know, I won't talk about other sports because I'll probably get those wrong, but 
certainly for cycling, there's no big TV deals that are driving, you know, helping us run that advocacy business or whatever. Um, and that's why cycling needs to be as efficient as it can be. Um, one, to, to use what money it has well. And then secondly, to target, um, to target um, sources of financial support better. Um, you know, again, crazy examples from the federated model was three or four separate organizations all hitting up the same sponsors mm. for similar kinds of deals at the same time. And one that makes it harder to succeed because you've got small groups targeting you know, other small groups. And it also just makes you look, you know, frankly, like a shit show if, if, if you're uncoordinated because somebody from the outside will go, surely they talk to each other. <laughs> and the real answer was probably no, they didn't yeah, for, yeah. for a whole range of reasons. So getting those, aligning those incentives, you know, is super important. And, and I think as we went around the country and talked to people about this, most people get it because again, you sort, sort of show them the 19 boxes and you go, do you reckon that's a sensible way to run a business in an efficient way? And they go, no. Um, but you're right, we did have to convince a lot of people that um, stepping back and you know, no longer being a board member of a state-based organization um, was the right thing to, to, to uh, have the, the, the sport of cycling progress. So I'll ask you two questions now. Firstly, now that you've achieved this incredible achievement and really unprecedented to the best of my knowledge in Australian sport, um, what is the vision for that going forward? And why at this crowning glory moment have you decided to step down. I'm sure you weren't asked to. I'm sure it would have been your job to keep if you chose to. Uh, look, well, again, one of the difficulties of, uh, of trying to achieve that unification was getting over the trust gaps between the different organisations. And I don't think Historically, I think Cycling Australia probably regarded itself as the senior organisation or whatever you want to call it. And, and I don't think they dealt fairly with, um, with other organisations, particularly with Mountain Bike and, and BMX Australia. Um, and so one of the key elements of getting over that was to say, Oz Cycling is not going to be a rebranded Cycling Australia. Um, and, and so, um, to do that effectively, um, we needed to have, uh, to be able to say, well, okay, the, the CEO is going to be different because if I had continued on, even though I didn't have a long history with cycling Australia, but if I had continued on, it's much easier for, um, for people to say, well, that's just CA rebranded. And that's definitely not what we wanted. Um, and, and I think also in having those conversations uh, with people um, you know, through the couple of years that we were talking, um, it, it certainly avoided the, the 
accusation from from people oh you just want to create an empire for yourself or um and because that was the same with the ceos of of mountain bike and bmx um you know we never faced any of that criticism um it was now that created its own problems because you know the the proposal was always okay we get this up uh and and then we'll go to market and find a new ceo that prompts people to go well, I don't know whether I want to do this because I don't know who the CEO is going to be. Um, but that's you know, next to impossible because you're never going to get a, a great CEO, as Marnie Fechner is, um, to step away from an existing role until there's a real job to go to. So there's a bit of chicken and egg there. But, you know, so that's, that's really the, the basis of why, um, why I moved away because it was kind of a, it was kind of a prerequisite to get it done, to, to help with that, that trust gap. Now to come back to the first part of your question, because I kind of asked the second, answered the second bit first, is you know, what do we want Oz Cycling to be? Um, ultimately, I'd like to see Oz Cycling act as a center of gravity for Australian cycling. Um, there's no doubt that it's, it comes from a racing background because most of the organization, well, all of the organizations that, that uh, formed it had had a racing background but um, I think if we limited ourselves to racing um, then then we're really um, you know looking at what is a very small cohort um, again I don't know what the exact figures are it's somewhere between two and four million people depending on which survey you look at who ride a bike at least once a month um, but the numbers of people that are actually members of cycling organisations, um, even if you define that broadly to include the participation organisations and so forth, it's probably something like 150,000. So you've got millions of people who ride a bike and who love riding bikes, um, but only a small subset of those who want to race. Um, and so Oz Cycling should be trying to be more than just a racing organisation and should be um, uh, one that's fighting for those three things that we talked about. Getting more people on bikes, having more places to ride and being able to do it more safely. Okay, so therefore, do you think that you should try to go further, whether no longer yourself, but the organization of Oz Cycling and try to merge the advocacy groups of which there's also, if you like, a, a sort of a federated Almost, yeah. Body. Oh, look, definitely. Um, again, my, my view is that, um, firstly, I, I come from a I love cycling kind of background. And I think if cycling is going to be effective in lobbying, um, even to maintain, uh, you know, the right for people to ride around in cities and so forth, um, it needs the strongest, loudest voice it can get. Um, and I think that's, that's probably going to be achieved ultimately by being as unified as possible and being able to, to share resources. Now, I don't know enough on the advocacy side. I don't know whether, for instance, um, you know, Bicycle uh, Network and Bicycle New South Wales are talking all the time and sharing um, you know, 
resources on how to run their organization more efficiently, but I suspect they're probably not. Um, I know that your suspicions are well founded. <laughs> what about concerns advocacy groups might have? Are we just going to be taken over by the racing organization? And if money gets tight, you know, our goals are actually slightly different and we might just be basically usurped. What would you say to those concerns? I don't think that they're valid. Um, I think like running any business, you need to look after all of your customers. Um, and the, the vast majority of the customer base are non-racing. Um, but I think there are, there are ways that the, the, the racing side of, of, the, of the cycling cohort can be used much more effectively to benefit the advocacy side. Um, you know, like it or not, um, you know, Cadell Evans is going to be more effective at influencing government than a hairy-legged tourist from Lilydale that nobody's ever heard of. Um, and, and that's sad but true. Um, so if you can leverage those resources from the racing side, you know, hopefully in, in a couple of months' time, we're going to have a new set of Olympic gold medal cyclists who are Australian. They're going to, the politicians are going to listen to, to them um, you know, more than others. So using that leverage to benefit all of the cyclists, again, that's something that a unified body can do. I can't let that hairy-legged comment go without <laughs> immediately feeling self-conscious that I no longer shave my legs. Do you still shave your legs? I do. I've had a few breaks over the years, but I'm, I'm, I'm back into it at the moment. Okay, now that we've got that important question out of the way, we might just roll back onto the topic at hand. No problem. So, what are the key things you think need to happen in Australia for cycling to become more prevalent? You know, what should Cadell be asking for when he's speaking to the Prime Minister or whoever he's speaking to? I think where, where cycling has, has struggled over the years is just being pigeonholed as a sport. Um, I think there's, and we've seen it uh, during the COVID period, um, cycling offers so much more. So, you know, aside from, from the, the sort of competitive sporting side, you've got the sort of physical health, mental health, pollution reduction, uh, congestion reduction, all those sorts of benefits that, that cycling uh, is probably unique in, in maybe walking is, comes close, but um, you know, uh, cycling has those benefits that can offer the community so much more than any other sport. Um, but it's been quite severely impacted by the growth of our cities. So if you look at um, well, the, the response to uh, the, the risks of cycling versus the risks of swimming. So swimming has been fantastic. It's, I love swimming. It's great. Um, kids do occasionally drown in pools. What's the, what's the response to that been? Um, it's been twofold. One, teach all the kids to swim 
and two, let's make pool fences mandatory. Those sorts of things to encourage swimming. The general response from parents to risks around cycling have been to buy an SUV and drive the kids to school. And what's the result of that? Fat kids on iPads. Um, cycling can help to break that down, but it's going to take sort of coordinated action over a period of time because uh, I think the figures are over the last 30 years since, you know, since I was a kid, let's say, um, there's twice the number of people and three times the number of cars or three times the number of motorized vehicles in, in our cities. And something like two thirds of the Australian population live in the five major cities. So that huge growth and, and, and the resultant congestion has in many areas led parents who are concerned about um, the, the low likelihood but high impact risk of getting hit by a car or something to just discourage their kids from cycling. And that's exactly the opposite from what we should be doing from mental health, physical health, congestion, you know, you name it. So I'd be trying to get Cadell and others to, to push that message with government because I think it's not just about sport. There are some, you know, the, we can save a lot of money in the long term from the health budget and the transport budget and all those sorts of things. You know, rather than building another you know, 50 freeways or something, let's get more people riding. So you mentioned family there and the you know, low risk, but the high impact. Now you're a father yourself. So just talk about your own family, your wife and sons. And do you feel comfortable with them on the road? Do you ever ride with them? What's the situation in the Drake household? Um, we're, we're probably not as much of a cycling family as I would like. Um, my wife loves cycling um, and, and she rides close to every day. Um, the boys, um, uh, one's now 19, He's actually come back to cycling a little bit, mucking around with his mates. The younger one, uh, who's 17, has been doing some school cycling. Um, so, you know, I think we've had them on bikes since they were very little. Um, I think they're, they're, they're sensible enough when they ride, but, you know, you do need to be careful. Um, you know, I've been riding for 35 years, I've still got to be careful. And for you, what riding is ahead for you? Um, as I did say, I have been shaving the legs a bit. Um, I've been doing a bit of racing in the last little while, just trying to get a little bit fit, um, doing some more masters and, and, and that kind of racing, um, mostly just to have, have a bit of a laugh. And career-wise, bigger picture-wise, uh, a future role, you're sort of between jobs now, I gather, and a future role in cycling perhaps, or what would you like to see? Uh, look, I, I don't think I would, um, you know, I think I've kind of done my tour of duty, if you like, um, from, from the, the cycling side. It's not to say that I wouldn't help out um, if an opportunity arose, um, but I'm sort of more thinking um, at spending some time and, and figuring out what the next interesting opportunity is. I like helping uh, to solve complex problems if I can. I suppose that's part of what I did at, at UBS and definitely was the focus at Cycling Australia. So I'll, I'll find something that's interesting and, and jump into that at some point. Well, Stephen, congratulations on pulling off the merger of the century 
and thanks for being an influencer. No worries, Phil, thank you. Thank you.